This morning we're in Luke chapter 20. Luke chapter 20, the end of the chapter, verses 27 through 44. So if you've got a Bible, it'll uh, it'll be helpful if you open it there. Luke chapter 20, verses 27 through 44. There's um, sort of a bare bones outline on the back of the bulletin, if that's helpful for you to keep an eye on as we move along. Luke 20, verses 27 through 44. Um, I wonder how often we think about our resurrection from the dead. Um, so not so much the fact that when we die as Christians, we'll go to be with the Lord immediately. But that second part where when Christ returns, our body, our corpse will be raised from the dead. And then our body physically will be with the Lord for all eternity. I wonder how much we think about that. And, and a particular question to think about. If you knew that your soul would be with the Lord for all eternity and your body wouldn't, but your soul would. When you think about that right now, does that feel like it would be enough for you? Do you think, yeah, I'd be satisfied with that. That sounds, that sounds good enough. Well, that situation where our soul would be with the Lord for eternity, but our body would not be, that situation is not good enough for the God of the Bible. And that's sort of the main idea in our passage this morning about the resurrection. So hear the word of the Lord again, Luke 20, verses 27 through 44. Some of the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came up and questioned Jesus. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother has a wife and dies childless, his brother should take the wife and produce offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. Also the second and the third took her. In the same way, all seven died and left no children. Finally, the woman died too. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For all seven had married her. Jesus told them, the children of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are counted worthy to take part in that age and in the resurrection from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they can no longer die because they are like angels and are children of God, since they are children of the resurrection. Moses even indicated in the passage about the burning bush that the dead are raised, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living, because all are living to him. Some of the scribes answered, teacher, you have spoken well, and they no longer dared to ask him anything. Then he said to them, how can they say that the Christ is the son of David? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord declared to my Lord, sit in my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David calls him Lord. How then can the Christ be his son? Well, as we, as we move through this passage, we're going to see four main truths. That's why we'll break up our time together. You'll see that listed on the back of the bulletin. So first that we see from this passage, Jesus never gets tripped up. Second, earthly marriage is temporary. Third, the Bible teaches the resurrection. The entire Bible teaches the resurrection from the dead. And fourth, the resurrected Christ is Lord. So this passage, it runs in the same stream as the last two passages we've looked at. In fact, the entire 20th chapter of, of Luke. So these religious authorities in Israel, they keep trying to trip Jesus up. So they're challenging him. They're trying to make him look silly. They're trying to make him be sort of off balance so the crowd see he's not that great. They're even trying to get him in legal trouble where hopefully he could be executed. That's kind of their end game. That's what they're hoping for. It, it began all the way back in verse two of chapter 20. Look there, the religious leaders come to Jesus and they ask, tell us by what authority are you doing these things? Who is it who gave you this authority? 
That's basically what all of chapter 20 has been about. The authorities, the religious leaders keep coming to Jesus and questioning his authority. Basically saying it's not legitimate. You're not who you say you are. And that's what happens in the passage again this morning. Look again at how Luke sets it up. Verse 20 or verse 27 rather. Some of the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came up and questioned him. So if you're familiar with the Bible, you're probably familiar with this group called the Sadducees. Now, they're not as popular. They're not as prevalent in the gospel stories as the Pharisees, but it's the same kind of idea. So they're a sect of Judaism. So there's the Pharisees or there's a smaller group called the Sadducees. And, and the thing that makes them distinct, several things, but the main thing Jesus tells us here, they say there is no resurrection. So whereas the Bible, we're going to talk about this in a minute, the Bible teaches that every human who ever dies in human history will one day be raised to life or to death. That's what Jesus talks about. Listen to the way he says it. John chapter 5, verse 28, about the resurrection. He says, a time is coming when all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good things to resurrection of life, but those who have done wicked things to the resurrection of condemnation. So scripture teaches there's a resurrection from the dead, but the Sadducees don't believe in that. They don't think there's going to be any resurrection. In fact, they really didn't believe in any afterlife at all. They thought this was it. And when this life is over, it's over. So that's the group that's coming to Jesus. And just like the Pharisees, they didn't like Jesus either. So they're coming to him. This is not a legitimate question. They're trying to trip him up. Same way that we've seen all throughout chapter 20. They're trying to make him look bad. So they do it by giving this hypothetical scenario based on a command that was given to the Israelites in the Old Testament from Deuteronomy chapter 25. Look at verse 28. This is the hypothetical they give. They say, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother has a wife and dies childless, his brother should take the wife and produce offspring for his brother. So this is a law in the Old Testament. The design behind the law is that that dead brother, his name could continue on. That was incredibly significant in the ancient Near East, in Israel in particular. So that's the law that's given in Deuteronomy 25. If you have a brother and he's married, and he hasn't produced any children and he dies, then you take his wife as your wife so that you can produce children and then name that firstborn son after that deceased brother. So his name can continue on. And Deuteronomy 25 tells us the purpose. The first son she bears will carry on the name of the dead brother. So his name will not be blotted out from Israel. Okay, so with that law in mind, look at the rest of what they say, the scenario that they give here to Jesus to try and trip him up. Verse 29. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. Also the second and the third took her. In the same way, all seven died and left no children. Finally, the woman died too. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? So we can imagine this scenario. The woman has seven different husbands and the wife and all the husbands end up dead. Nobody produced an heir, so they're all kind of on the same footing. She was married to all seven, and the wife is dead, and all seven husbands are dead. So what happens in the resurrected life, the Sadducees are asking. Um, you guys, this is different from when we were ministering in Maine, but you guys, probably none of you are Patriots fans, which I understand and makes sense. But I wasn't a Patriots fan either in the beginning of the 2000s, and I remember this, so maybe you remember it too. So Drew Bledsoe the quarterback for the Patriots. It's a great quarterback. He gets hurt. 
that's when Tom Brady starts to play quarterback for the Patriots. And you guys probably know this. He did pretty well. So he's winning games. Drew Bledsoe's hurt. Tom Brady's leading the team. They get into the playoffs, but then here's the problem. Drew Bledsoe gets better. So all of a sudden he's healthy. And the question is, what do we do? Because we have two quarterbacks and we have one spot for a starting quarterback. That's the kind of thing that they're painting here for Jesus. There are seven husbands, but there's only one wife. So what happens in the resurrected life? What happens in the new heavens and the new earth? And again, they think they're going to get Jesus here. They're trying to show not only that the resurrection is a stupid, illogical idea. That's part of what they're doing by painting this hypothetical question. But they're also trying to show that Jesus is a stupid, illogical teacher. And he's not going to be able to answer this question. But as you can probably guess, if you don't remember this story, that's not the way it goes down. So look at how Jesus responds. Verse 34. Jesus told them, the children of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are counted worthy to take part in that age and in the resurrection from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they can no longer die because they are like angels and are children of God since they are children of the resurrection. Moses even indicated in the passage about the burning bush that the dead are raised, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living, because all are living to him. Now, we're going to go more into the details of what Jesus says here. But for now, just look at the reaction of the scribes, who, who were sort of like the lawyers of the day and the law clerks of the day. Verse 39, some of the scribes answered, teacher, you have spoken well, and they no longer dared to ask him anything. And this is our first main point from this passage. It's one we've pointed out for the past several weeks, but we'll keep pointing it out as often as the text points it out. Jesus never gets tripped up. He never gets tripped up. These authorities keep coming to him and trying to fool him, make him look silly. It never happens. They bring their gotcha questions, but he never gets tripped up. And he's not ever going to get tripped up. That will never happen. Look back at verse 26 from the passage Mark preached last Sunday. They were not able to catch him in what he said in public. And being amazed at his answer, they became silent. And again, verse 39 in our passage, some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, and they no longer dared to ask him anything. You may hear people question Jesus and question the gospel and question the Bible. It happens all the time, right? That may happen to you at work with coworkers, or you might see it on Facebook, or you might hear somebody on television kind of lobbing these attacks on the illogical nature of Christianity or how the, the Bible has errors or Christ wasn't who he said he was. And there may be some of those questions that seem daunting to you. So I'm a pastor, so I was trained in ministry and you know was able to do it in Maine and have great teachers around me and, and that sort of thing. So there's times regularly where I'll hear a question and I'll think, ooh, you know what, I need to think about that. So there are questions like that, but here's the thing. Even though we might slow down and there's a question we might hear that sounds daunting, like, wait, how does that work? As far as the gospel goes or the Bible goes or Christ goes, Jesus never gets tripped up. There's never a daunting question for him. There's never anything he's worried about. There's never anything that slows down his thinking about these things, even a bit. He, he always handles himself just fine. Like Philippians chapter 2, verse 11 says, one day every one of his enemies will have to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord 
to the glory of God the Father. So the, the world doesn't see it yet, but one day they will. And just remember that. Christ never gets tripped up. All of this is true. Everything we've been reading this morning, everything we've been singing, the things that we've been praying, all of it is true. We don't know that because we're so smart and logical and can put it all together and can solve every issue. We know that because Christ is good and Christ never gets tripped up. Their challenges aren't anything to worry about ever. But, but there's a lot more for us to learn here. So let's look at the actual response, kind of the content that Jesus gives to this challenge about the resurrection. Look again at their question, verse 33. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For all seven had married her. This is the beginning of Jesus's answer. Jesus told them, the children of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are counted worthy to take part in that age, in that age, the future age, and in the resurrection from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. This is our second main point this morning. Earthly marriage is temporary. That's what Jesus teaches us here. Earthly marriage is temporary. And, and this is Jesus's central answer to the Sadducees question. So they're assuming that if there was a resurrection, marriage would carry on into that resurrection. But Jesus makes it clear that's not the case. Marriage is temporary. So that woman won't be anybody's wife in the new heavens and the new earth. He says, those who are counted worthy to take part in that age and in the resurrection from the dead, neither marry, he's talking about men there, nor are given in marriage. He's talking about women. So after the resurrection from the dead, no one will be married. Now you might hear that and you might be familiar with that idea, but even as you hear it now and think about it again, that might sting a little bit. So your spouse won't be your spouse in the new heavens and the new earth. Nobody will be married. Now, if, if you feel that sting, praise God for that in a way, it's most likely fruit that you love your spouse. Your spouse loves you. Praise the Lord for that. But let's let's soften this a little bit. Let's let's hear why we can actually be encouraged that earthly marriage is temporary. Because when you hear it now, you might think oh, that doesn't feel very encouraging, but it is encouraging. So let's be reminded why it's encouraging. Part of the reason that marriage is temporary is because marriage was always designed to point to something much greater. It was always designed to point to something much greater. So, so in the same way that a preview for a movie points to the movie, but the movie is actually much better, much fuller than the preview, it's that same kind of idea. Earthly marriage is pointing to something. It's previewing something that's much fuller, much better. The most helpful passage on this topic is Ephesians 5. And in that chapter, you might remember Paul's been given responsibilities to husbands and responsibilities to wives. And then this is what he says. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This mystery, the, the mystery of the bond of marriage, this mystery is profound, but I am talking about Christ and the church. Marriage was designed by God to point to the gospel. That's what it was designed to do, the main thing. It was designed to point to the gospel. The husband is playing the part of Jesus and the wife is playing the part of the church, of all Christians for all time. But see, when we get to heaven, those parts no longer need to be played because the church will actually literally be with Jesus. 
It doesn't have to be pictured or previewed anymore. It, it will be the reality. That's the imagery the book of Revelation is getting at with the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's like a wedding when the church finally is there with Christ for all eternity. And there's this wedding feast. Christ as the husband, the church as the bride. So remember that because any fulfillment that you get out of earthly marriage, any encouragement, any help, any joy, all those will, will pale in comparison to what we'll have on the day where the church is finally married to Christ, where we're actually brought before Jesus and with him for all eternity. And that's the reality your earthly marriage is meant to be a small picture of. So again, think about that, that illustration of seeing movies, which when you have a lot of little kids, you don't get to go to movie theaters anymore, but someday, someday we will go back to a movie theater. But when you're sitting there and you're watching a movie, do you ever have the impulse? You know what I need to do? I need to pull out my phone and pull up the preview for this movie because I, I, I want to have that preview with me while I'm watching the movie. No, of course not, right? The preview is just small little snippets. It has things that are on the movie, but the movie is much more full. The preview was just pointing you to the movie. That's the same thing. So in the new heavens and the new earth, make no mistake about it, you won't be longing for earthly marriage because that's just a preview that's pointing to the much better thing, the fuller reality of being with Christ. So remember that. And in particular, remember this truth of the temporary nature of marriage when you're tempted to make marriage an idol. And that happens, doesn't it? So there's a New Testament scholar, his name is D.A. Carson. He gives a great definition of an idol. So good. So he says that an idol is when you put your hope, happiness, significance, or security in anything other than God. That's when you've got an idol. It's easy to remember, right? Because you've got those two H's and those two S's. When you put your happiness, your hope, your significance, or your security in anything other than God. And, and we're oftentimes tempted to do that with marriage, right? So, so if you're not married, aren't there sometimes where you're tempted to think you'll be truly happy once you get a spouse? So it's like it's waiting. True happiness isn't there yet, but you get a spouse and, and then you'll be truly happy. Or if you're married, isn't it sometimes easy to put your significance in the fact that you're a husband or a wife? And you think about yourself as that, characterized as that, almost from start to finish. That's who I am. I am a husband or a wife. You put all your significance there. Aren't you times, uh, sometimes tempted to think that as long as your spouse is around, you'll be safe and, and have all you need? It's easy to put our hope in our spouse. It's easy to put our hope to see our happiness coming from earthly marriage. But of course, you don't have to be married long to realize that idol will let you down. Just like any created thing, any non-God thing, marriage isn't strong enough to bear the weight of your worship. It wasn't created to do that. And we're reminded about that even when we remember what Jesus teaches us here, that our earthly marriages won't last into eternity. Verse 35 again, but those who are counted worthy to take part in that age and in the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. But there's another reason that marriage won't be necessary in the new heavens and the new earth, which is helpful for us to notice. Look at verse 35. But those who are counted worthy to take part in that age and in the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for, now we should pause, that word's significant. So when you're reading the Bible, that's always a helpful word to look for. Because when you see for, he's about to give you the reason for something. So he's making an argument. 
So oftentimes in my Bible, if you're comfortable writing in your Bible, you might circle that word because that lets you know, oh, here comes something. He's going to show me. He's putting the pieces together for me. He's giving me the reason. Four, they can no longer die because they are like angels and are children of God since they are children of the resurrection. Okay, so we can summarize what Jesus said. just said. He said, there's no marriage in heaven because nobody will die. That's the logic. There won't be any marriage in heaven because no one will die. Okay, so how does that work? What's he, what's he getting at there? No one ever dies in heaven. What does that have to do with no need for marriage? Well, here it is. If no one ever dies in heaven, then you won't need to produce new people. You won't need to make babies. Now, here in this life, what Jesus calls this age we do need to have babies because people do die. In fact, if, if you keep up with the way other countries think about these things, there's a lot of countries where they realize they're in trouble because their population is decreasing at a rapid pace. They've realized we don't have enough babies. And so what they've done, those countries are trying to encourage their citizens to have more babies. But see, in heaven, that won't be a problem because no one ever dies. So that makes sense, right? And, and just as a side note, just like you won't be a spouse in the new heavens and the new earth, you won't be a parent either. Look, look at how we're referred to in verse 36. For they can no longer die because they are like angels and are children of God, since they are children of the resurrection. That Greek word there for children, it, it can be translated as son or as child. But, but even if we translate it as son, we know that it includes females as well, because in verse 35, which says the children can be brides or grooms in this present age. And verse 36 calls these folks children of God. And see, that will be the parental relationship that lasts for all eternity, not us as dads and moms, or not you as a child ha having parents and your children of those parents. No, as far as heaven is concerned, there's, there's only one parent and it's God the Father. All the rest of us will be related to one another in heaven, but as brothers and sisters in Christ. So just like we shouldn't idolize marriage, we shouldn't idolize our children either or, or find our significance in our role as a parent. So again, when we're tempted to do that, it's helpful to think about this passage of scripture. So, so Jesus sets the Sadducees straight that there's no marriage in heaven. But under this first point, the one last thing for us to notice, God's purpose for the institution of marriage is fundamentally bound up with having and raising children. It's one other thing we see here. His, his purpose for marriage, it's, it's fundamentally bound up with having and raising children. So much so that since heaven won't need babies, God says it doesn't need marriage either. So we can see how the two are intended to go together. This is Genesis 128. God blessed them, Adam and Eve, and said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Now, here's why this is especially significant for us to understand in, in our cultural moment in particular. What this means is, while in God's providence, every marriage doesn't produce children, every marriage should at least be made up of the kinds of people that can possibly produce children, which is a man and a woman. So there, there's a, a move to redefine marriage to be only about emotional fulfillment. If you hear people talking about why should we redefine marriage? Why, why can't it be a man and a man or a woman and a woman or a group of people, some folks would say. Well, what they get when you get down to it, what they're saying is 
marriage is all about emotional fulfillment. And if somebody finds emotional fulfillment, then that should be able to count as a marriage. They, they would say marriage doesn't have anything to do with, with the potential of having kids and raising kids. It, it only has to do with making somebody happy. But see what, what the Bible teaches is God didn't create marriage for the main purpose of us being fulfilled. No, he, he created it for the main purpose of his tasks being fulfilled. Again, that's why Jesus says marriage isn't necessary in heaven because the task of producing more people will no longer be necessary in a place where nobody ever dies. Verse 35 again, but those who are counted worthy to take part in that age and in the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage for they can no longer die. So basically Jesus makes the Sadducees look as, as silly as they are here. He makes it clear because there won't be any death in heaven. We don't need marriage. Your question is nonsensical because the earthly marriage is temporary. But, but Jesus says more than that. He doesn't stop there. He, he immediately goes on to attack their idea that there's no resurrection from the dead, which is kind of the main thing they're getting at. And here's our third main point. The entire Bible teaches the resurrection from the dead. From start to finish, the entire Bible teaches the resurrection from the dead. Look at verse 37 and following. Moses even indicated in the passage about the burning bush that the dead are raised, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living, because all are living to him. Okay, so Jesus is arguing for the resurrection. And here's his argument. Back in Exodus 3, when God shows up talking to Moses from the burning bush, God calls himself the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And that introduction, the way God connects himself to those patriarchs, that shows that God's people will live forever with him. They won't be left in the grave. But that's not super intuitive, is it? So if somebody said to you, okay, I don't believe in the resurrection, prove it to me from the Bible. You probably want to go to Exodus 3 and read this verse and say, okay, can, can we go home? There it is. No, it's not super intuitive. So how does this all work? How's the argument go? What is it about Exodus 3 and God connecting himself to the patriarchs, saying he's the God of Abraham and the God of Jacob and the God of uh, Isaac? What does that have to do with the resurrection from the dead? Well, look at verse 37 again. Moses even indicated in the passage about the burning bush that the dead are raised, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Okay, so God is talking to Moses and he tells him that he remains the God of Abraham, uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Those three men are dead. They have been long dead by the time God is talking to Moses. But God says even, even though their bodies were in the grave, God still refers to himself as their God. He was presently their God, even though they were deceased. Okay, now look at verse 38. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living because all are living to him. Okay, so let's put this together. What he's saying is, if God is your God, he will provide you with life. That's the main idea here. If God is your God, he will provide you with life. And this is really simple. If you have children, you try to keep them alive, right? That's sort of 101, child raising 101, right? Keep them alive. That's the great thing about when you have young children, so that's all you have to do. The pediatrician just tells you, don't let them eat this thing. It'll be bad for them. You say, okay, got it. I'm not going to let them eat that thing. 
You try to not let them hurt themselves. You're trying to keep them alive. Well, that's patterned after God, who as our father wants to give us life. In fact, if you're a Christian, that's exactly what he did for you. This is Ephesians chapter two, verse one. As non-Christians, he's talking about our past. He says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously lived. But verse four of Ephesians two, but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he, that he had for us made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses. So, so God gave you spiritual life through Christ. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, you don't know what you think about Christ. This is what's offered to you this morning. This kind of spiritual life where your sins that will separate you from the Lord, if they're not dealt with, your sins can be covered. They can be erased in terms of the way God looks at it. They can be blotted out by the blood of Christ, by trusting in his cross, his work on the cross alone to pay for those sins and to unite you to God, to make you his father. That's the offer that's held out to you in the gospel. If you're interested in talking about that, come talk to me after the service or talk to one of the other pastors here. And we can continue talking to you about the gospel. But the great thing about the gospel, it's good news because it, it doesn't take us working hard to achieve it. We can never work hard enough to achieve it. It's offered to us as a gift. And it comes through trust alone in Christ alone to cover all of our sins. Okay, well, that's the kind of spiritual life that we're given in the gospel, the kind of newness of life, the way Romans 6 says it. Well, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, they had that spiritual life given to them through the gospel. They had believed the promises of God that pointed forward to Christ. They had spiritual life. And part of what that means is Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, their souls are currently with the Lord. And their souls were with the Lord when God was talking to Moses. So we understand this concept. It's the same way that as Christians, if you die before Christ returns, your soul will immediately go to be with the Lord too. That's what Jesus is getting at when with the thief on the cross, you remember this? He says, today you will be with me in paradise. It's because that man's soul, because he had trusted in Christ, his soul was gonna go and be with the Lord. So while your body is in the ground, your soul will be with the Lord. But here's kind of a main idea from this passage. Just our souls being with the Lord isn't good enough. It's at least not, not good enough for the Lord. Just our souls being with the Lord isn't good enough. Verse 38 again. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living, because all are living to him. So the, the life God promises to his children is the most full and abundant kind of life available. And that means it's not just spiritual life for the soul. It's also physical life for the body. And this is where a lot of fake religions diverge from Christianity. So there's, there's lots of religions and philosophies that say there is an afterlife, but it's just your spirit or soul that goes there. It's, it's not your body. But see, Christianity says that's not good enough. God is committed to saving all of us, the whole thing, soul and body. So as long as God is the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, he's going to be committed to one day raising them from the grave. And that's good news for us too. So when you die and you're in the grave, God will remain your God. And that means your bodily resurrection simply must happen. 
God doesn't let his children ultimately lose their bodies to death. Now, in the words of verse 36, children of God will also be children of the resurrection. Those things always go together. That's why Romans 8.23 says we're eagerly waiting for the redemption of our bodies. So not just our souls, but our bodies. So the question for us as Christians is, is that something that we ever think about? Is that something we praise God for? So it's not just that our immaterial soul will end up with the Lord. No, our entire being, soul, and body will end up with Jesus. That's good news. And that's because God's love for you, he will end up giving you the fullest kind of life imaginable, which includes life for your body. So so as a Christian, this is crazy to think about. As a Christian, those feet that are in your shoes right now, those feet through Christ will walk on the new heavens and the new earth. And those ears on your head, they will hear the church for all ages singing songs to the Lamb. Those ears will hear that. Those eyes will see your Savior face to face. Is that not crazy? But that's what he's teaching us here. Those bodies. Now, they'll be recreated somehow, and that's a mystery. He talks about that in 1 Corinthians 15. You could read that this afternoon. That'll go well with, with thinking about this passage. But that body, this body, will be in the new heavens and the new earth. Verse 38, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, because all are living to him. Now, you, you may wonder, okay, why didn't Jesus go to a more explicit passage, though, about the resurrection? Because those are available. Let me read you two. And when you hear them, you might think, oh, yeah, Jesus, why didn't you go to that one? Why'd you go to Exodus 3? This is Hosea chapter 13, verse 14. I will ransom them from the power of Sheol. I will redeem them from death. So I'll purchase them back from death. Good passage on the resurrection. Or Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, some some ladies in the church have been going through the book of Daniel. You'll remember this. Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. Many who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to eternal life and some to disgrace and eternal contempt. You can't get much more clear than that, right? So why didn't Jesus go to those? Okay, well, here's another significant thing about the Sadducees. Not only did they not believe in the afterlife, they also didn't believe that all of the Old Testament was authoritative, they only thought that part of it was, in particular, the first five books, what's called the Torah, the law. They didn't think the rest of it was authoritative. They didn't think the rest of it was inerrant, was perfect. It makes sense now, right? That's why Jesus goes to Exodus 3. He, he knows that if he goes to the prophets or if he goes to the Psalms, then, then those Sadducees are just going to say, well, yeah, but he's not quoting from God's real word. So no, he leaves them no space to go. He goes to the book that they knew was inspired as well. And he proves from the book of Exodus that the resurrection will happen. But here's what we see from this. Jesus didn't need to go to the prophets or the Psalms. And that's because the idea of the resurrection from the dead is present from the very beginning. The entire Bible, the whole thing teaches the resurrection from the dead. But see, as, as Jesus was talking about all this, it, it was clear to everyone that the resurrection of the dead hadn't happened yet. So as he's talking about that, it's still a future thing. And it's still a future thing now. So if somebody is sitting in here and they're not sure what they think about the Bible, you might be thinking, well, yeah, it's easy to make promises about the future when the future hasn't come yet. 
So you can say all you want, there's going to be a resurrection from the dead, but, but it still hasn't happened. You know, how do we know it's going to happen? Well, the final section of our passage answers that question for us. How do we know this is really going to happen? Look at verse 41. Then Jesus said to them, how can they say that the Christ is the son of David? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David calls him Lord. How then, how then can the Christ be his son? So Jesus takes this opportunity to ask the Sadducees a question, but really it's not a question. By asking them a question, he's really giving them an answer. So the religious authorities have been asking the whole chapter, who do you think you are? By what authority do you do these things? How, how do you think the people should be able to trust you? Who are you, Jesus? They've been challenging him with those questions. But with his question in now, he's making it clear that he's the Lord. He, he's not just a guy predicting this stuff. It's not just his best guess that the resurrection will take place. The, the religious leaders are treating him that way. In fact, there's a good chance in verse 39 where they call him teacher. There's a good chance that they're sort of making it clear to him, that's what you are, Jesus. You're a teacher. You're one teacher among many other teachers. We see that oftentimes in the book of Luke. If you go back and you look at the times people challenge Jesus, oftentimes that's the way they address him. Yeah, you're a teacher among many other teachers. But even if they did believe he was God's chosen king, they still thought he was just a man. So when Jesus was said to be the son of David, and he talks about it here in this quotation from Psalm 110, these religious leaders, they thought that just meant he was just a human descendant from David. He was just in the line of David. But Jesus isn't just one teacher among many. He's not a merely human descendant of David. To make this clear, he quotes from Psalm 110, verse 42 again. The Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, like Jesus says, this was a psalm of David. And there's two distinct people David is talking about in this psalm where Jesus quotes it. The first one is the Lord, which in the Hebrew of Psalm 110 is Yahweh. So that's God proper. Everybody knew that. Okay, the Lord, that's talking about the God of the universe. But then there's a second character who David calls my Lord. So the Lord, character one says, to my Lord, character two. So this is somebody distinct from God the Father, but somebody who is superior to David. And we know that, Jesus says, because of the way David addresses him. Verse 44, David calls him Lord. How then can the Christ be his son? So in the culture of the ancient Near East, fathers didn't call their sons my Lord, same way that it works now. No, it was the other way around. You called somebody your Lord if they were superior to you, not if they were your child. So why does David refer to his great, 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 great bunch of greats grandson as my Lord? Well, it's because this future promised king won't only be fully man, he'll also be fully God. We see it all the way back in Psalm 110. Jesus is David's Lord, the exact same way that Yahweh is David's Lord. So as we close, what does that have to do with the previous verses, though, about the resurrection? What's the connection there? Well, look again at what Psalm 110 says God will do for the Messiah. Verse 42, the Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. 
So the, the promised king who was coming to save Israel, God the Father was going to put all his enemies underneath the king's feet. That's the promise. Back in Psalm 110, that God the Father is making to God the Son. He'll put all his enemies under his feet. Now listen to what we're told about Jesus in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 25. For Christ must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet, the same picture, and the last enemy to be abolished is death. So Psalm 110 about the promised king being sent by God to defeat all his enemies. The final enemy that will be made his footstool is death. And that's what happens when Jesus goes to the cross, rises from the grave. He's defeating death. And that means that when he returns, death will not be able to hold on to any of God's people. So Abraham and Isaac and Jacob will be raised to life. And if you're trusting in Christ you'll be raised to life too. So see, the thing we've seen over and over again in Luke 20 is that Jesus never gets tripped up by these religious leaders trying to challenge him. But what we see here at the end of chapter 20 is he doesn't get tripped up by death either. That enemy won't do anything to him. He defeats it. He makes all his enemies look foolish, even the grave. And the grave is God's enemy. It separates his people, at least physically for a time, from him. But see, he's too big and too good to let that happen. His, his love for you is too full to merely be satisfied with your soul being in his presence. No, your body and soul, all of you, needs to be with God. And so Jesus came to give his body to bring your body to God. He, he came to rob graves so God's people can be with God. And he has the authority to do it because the resurrected Christ is Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we're so thankful for this passage of Scripture. We're so thankful, Father, that Christ is too good of a Savior, that your intentions as our Father are too good of intentions, that the effectiveness of the Holy Spirit is too potent for our bodies to remain in the ground for eternity. Father, you're, you're too good. The gospel is too good for it to merely be that our souls are with you. For all eternity. No, Father, you make it clear that, that the good news of the gospel is that all of us, our entire being, body and soul, will be with Christ for all eternity. Father, we're so thankful for that good news. We pray that we would turn our eyes that direction often, that we would regularly reconsider our resurrection from the dead. And Father, that it would, it would help us to understand uh, uh, the priority of things in this world. And Father, in particular, that it would help us to understand uh, the good news of where we're headed. We're so thankful for Christ and his work on our behalf. And we pray that he would be glorified in our bodies. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.